Well, we are coming to our end of our study in Revelation. Hallelujah, right? It's been quite a journey, and most of it I would call depressing at times. You read through Revelation about all the judgments that's coming on the world, and it's, it's tough to hear because you know folks are going to be here, and they're going to go through that. As we learned two weeks ago that many of the folks that are here today or here during that time will end up in the lake of fire. And that alone should energize us to be about God's business. But now we're coming to the good parts of the book. What happens when all this is over? What will the world be like when all the, the bad stuff's done? Well, we ended chapter 20 with the devil and the fallen angels and those who have rejected Christ along with death and the grave, all of them sent to hell, all of them done. Revelation 20.10 says, Then the devil who betrayed them was thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And verse 14 says, And death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was also thrown into the lake of fire. So think about it, all sin, all temptation, death, sickness, everything, gone. Perfect peace. Well, now what happens? Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Now, there's two theories about this verse. The first one is that God kind of rebuilds what we have today. The other is that God destroys everything that we have today and rebuilds it brand new. I think the second is the more thought of verse rather than rebuilding. Most scholars believe that God destroys everything and just starts anew, which is okay with me. Although there are, there are some classic cars I wish God would keep <laughs> for heaven. But I'm afraid everything we see, everything is gonna be burned up and God's gonna start brand new. Isaiah 34, 4 says this, The heavens above will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky just as withered leaves and uh, fruit fall from a tree. So most people believe that God's going to burn everything up, start brand new. Isaiah 65, 17 says, Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, not a rebuilt one. So wonderful that no one will ever think about the old ones anymore. Mark 13, 31, Heaven and earth will disappear but my words will remain forever. And the, and the second part of Revelation 21.1 says, and the sea was also gone. Another reason that it's a, not a regenerated earth, but a totally new one, is that the, earth and the seas and the oceans aren't going to be necessary for replacing oxygen. Right now, they replace oxygen. From the plant life and the things in the sea, it replaces the oxygen. We have the cycle where it rains. All that's going to be gone. So if you have... Like my brother, if you have beachfront property, not going to have beachfront property. Currently, oceans and seas have been barriers between countries. You can't, you know, it's a barrier to get to another country, you got to cross the ocean or sea. Well, we won't be divided anymore. It will be united. The earth will be one united thing. doesn't mean there won't be water. It just means it won't be divided by the oceans. Revelation 21.2 says, Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. 
Now, we know the city also exists. It's already built. God's got it with him. Galatians 4.26 says, or, yeah, Galatians 4.26 says, but Sarah, the free woman, represented the heavenly Jerusalem. It's already built. God has it up there with him. Hebrews 11.10 says, Abraham did this because he was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. So it's a city that's already prepared in heaven for those of us who believe. And at some point, it's going to come down from heaven onto the new earth. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. No longer two separate places. Heaven won't be separate from the earth. It will be together. One, it wasn't, you know, it was one for mankind, one for God. Well, God and humans are going to be in the same place. Just like in your Sunday school lesson today, God walked with them in the cool of the day. God's going to walk with us in the cool of the day during that time. There won't be a separation between us. Heaven and earth will basically be combined. And the loud shout that you hear was an encouragement. You know, after worship, sometimes we, we shout. We get excited about things of God. I, I read a, uh, an article, and we've said this analogy before, you know, how excited do we get when we watch our favorite football team or our favorite sports team, you know? I don't want to see anybody come in with their chest painted red, okay? Guys, you know, don't paint your chest red. But you get excited about your team scoring. How much more should we be excited about what God is doing? And even in anticipation of what God's going to do. And we, we talk about hope, we sing about hope. Imagine if you knew that tomorrow you're going to get a check for a million bucks. Would you be sitting around going, oh, woe is me. Oh, if I only, no, you'd be, man, anticipation. I can't wait for that mail to get here tomorrow. I'm ready. I'm ready for that check. Well, God has something better than that promise for us. That's how excited we should be, just anticipating what God's going to do. And the shout coming from heaven was exactly that. They were excited about what God is doing at that moment. The new city's coming down. Heaven and earth are going to be combined. They are excited. Verse 4 says, he will remove all of their sorrows, and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, for the old world and its evils are gone forever. All the effects of sin, sickness, death, misery, you know, depression, all that stuff, it will be gone. Anxiety, everything that is a product of sin, gone. Because all evil has been banished. Just before the snake got there, in the garden, that's how it's going to be. Perfect peace. And there will be no more snake. There will be no more temptation because we will now be in a perfect place. And when we're in heaven, we will remember everything that's worth remembering. But we're not going to remember things that will cause us regret or grief. Why would you be in heaven in a, grie in a grieving state? So the things that cause you grief here, grief, you know, sorrow, whatever, pain, things that cause you that here, you're not going to remember that. If you have family members that don't know Christ, well, we're, you know, we're praying for them that come to know Christ. But if you go to heaven before them, you're not going to be worried about them. You're not going to remember them. Why would you think about someone who's in hell while you're in heaven? All that will be gone. Isaiah 65, 17 says, Look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, so wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. 
once you die, and I said this before, once you die, you no longer see what happens on earth. How many understand that? Grandma's not looking down on you from heaven because grandma would be upset if she's looking down on you from heaven. She is enjoying where she is if she's in heaven. All the things that you would see and remember that would cause regret or grief or sorrow is gone. Now, on the other hand, if you wind up in hell, you will remember everything. You'll remember every time you heard the gospel. You'll remember all the friends that talked to you about Christ. You're going to remember every chance you had to come to know Christ. And you're going to remember all your loved ones who accepted Christ and get to heaven. And you will live eternally with sorrow and regret. Luke 16, 26, Lazarus and the rich man. It says, and the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, send him to my father's house. So he remembered his family. I have five brothers and I want to warn them about this place of torment so they won't have to come here when they die. He remembered his chance. He remembered his family. He knew that his family didn't know Christ. He remembers. In heaven, you won't remember any of that. But in hell, you remember all of it. Now in this account, you don't see Lazarus knows or even sees hell. You don't see that in that account. Lazarus the rich man. The rich man can see heaven, but heaven can't see hell. Now, it's called Lazarus and the rich man. He's not in hell because he's rich. He's in hell because he rejected Christ. You can be rich and be a Christian. How many understand that? It's not the money. It's a relationship with Christ. Revelation 21.5 says, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, write this down for what, I, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Now, most scholars believe that Jesus is the one speaking since the Bible tells us that he created everything. And it says here, he created everything. I've, everything I'm doing is true. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him so in revelation he's saying look i am making all things new and the bible says that jesus creates everything that everything that ever existed jesus created that's telling us that jesus is the one doing the speaking and the word indicates god's creative act it doesn't mean it's not a rebranding or a rebuilding it's a new creation it's not when he says i'm making all things new it's not i'm making all things refurbished I'm making all things brand new. So everything we see today, no matter how beautiful or ugly, will be completely destroyed and recreated new. And he says to John that he needs to write this down because these aren't man's ideas. These are God's revelation to John. He, up to this point, he's been showing him, and now he's telling John, okay, write this down because you need to write it down so people understand it. And verse 6 and 7 in Revelation goes on and says, And he said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give the springs of water of life without charge. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Jesus, when he said on the cross, it's finished, it literally meant it's done. 
the requirements for sin have been met. In other words, it's finished. There's no more requirement, no more payment left for sin. And now the final promise has been met. It's done. Finished. Sin has been paid for. Done. The fulfillment of everything he promised from Alpha to Omega. And Alpha to Omega indicates everything. That's the first and letter, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Everything. A to Z has been completed at this point. And when he says all things who are, to all who are thirsty, he means now. Not in heaven, but right now. If you're thirsty for the things of God now, he will give you the promises then. So we need to be thirsty for God right now. Verse 17 backs that up. He says, he who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That means you just can't say a prayer once in your life and believe you're going to make it. You have to be hungry for God all the time. He who overcomes. If we thirst for God now, we are hungry for what God's going to do. We will be overcomers in this life. You know what happens when people walk away from God? It's because they're no longer thirsty. They're no longer, no longer hungry for God. It becomes a ritual. And the water that we thirst for now should be the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking about that during our praise and worship night because without the Holy Spirit, we really can't live for God. How many realize that? Without God's Spirit in us, because in ourselves, we can't do it. We don't want to do it. We have no desire to live for God in ourselves. The Holy Spirit fills us with that desire. The Bible says he renews our mind. He gives us that mind. When you become a Christian, if you got saved later in life, your, inst your mind began to change. Things you used to think, you change and you think differently now. That's the Holy Spirit renewing your mind. But it has to be a continual process. It can't just be a one and done. The Bible says to continually be filled with the Spirit. It's like, it's like eating. You know, you don't eat once a week or twice a week. And you certainly don't drink water once a week. You want that every time you're hungry, you want to get filled. And every time we're hungry for God, we should ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to give us that mind. John 7, 37 says, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, If you are thirsty, come to me. If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow within him. Verse 39, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not entered yet into his glory. Living water, that's the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, you now have a new attitude, a new mind, and a new heart, and you have the desire to want to live for God. And the more you read God's word and the more you pray, the more God gives you that desire. It's kind of like the more you do it, the more you want. However, the less you do it, the less you're going to want. You're not going to want, if you're not in God's word, you're not praying and reading, the desire is going to fade away. That's why the Bible says you need to be continually filled, not just once in a while. Because what happens is, and I've said this before, when people walk away from God, it doesn't, it's not once. It's a, it's a process. First thing they do, you usually stop coming to church. They'll find reasons not to come. And then they'll stop reading their Bible or cut down on reading their Bible. And then when that happens, then they cut down on praying. And then what happens is 
they slide back into what they used to do. Because if you're an older person, you're, you're going to slide in back into what you used to do. You're going to be the old person again. You're going to walk away from the Holy Spirit. It's not going to have any influence on your life, and it's going to be easy to do. I remember when we, when we were young, this is before Christ, I have a younger brother who's 14 years younger than me. And my other brother is two years younger than me. We would take him to the mall. This is, we were bad. <laughs> we would put a new pair of shoes on my two-year-old brother. And say, wait here. We go out in the mall. And say, when we go out in the mall, you come. And he basically walk out. He's stealing a pair of shoes. Because we told him to do it. But he's two years old. He didn't understand. We understood. <laughs> You know what happens? The more you do it, the easier it becomes. The more you sin, the easier it becomes to sin. And the less conviction you're going to have of the Holy Spirit. That's why God says you need to continually be filled. You need to be thirsty for God. You should want God to fill you. Because if you don't, you're going to walk away. Now we're our praise and worship night this Friday night, we're focusing, talking about scriptures on the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit during that time. And if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're going to do that as well. We need the Holy Spirit to live this life. Amen. Revelation 21.8 says, But cowards who turn away from me, and unbelievers, and the corrupt, and murderers, and the immoral, and those who practice witchcraft, and idol worshipers, and all liars, their doom is in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. So you have one verse that gives you a list of people who's not going to make it. Now, let's go through that list real quick. These are the folks who aren't going to make heaven. And the first one he said are cowards. These are the folks who fear people more than they trust God. They care more about personal safety than loyalty to Christ. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things I shouldn't do on my job to keep my job because I don't trust God to keep my job for me. Or I'm going to cheat here because I don't trust God to make it up for me. Or I'm not going to say anything about Christ around my friends because I'm afraid that they're going to hate me or think I'm weird. The Bible calls that person a coward. The second person, the second group is unbelievers. Those are the people who have heard the truth, they've been in church, they've heard the gospel, and they've rejected it. It also includes those who once believed, but have left. There's a new term out that's pretty popular now, it's called deconstruction. How many have heard the term deconstructing? For people who are in the faith, and all of a sudden they, they come out of it and they start teaching against it, using the Bible as their backup. There was a a big one is, you know, hell doesn't exist. Hell is just, you know, God never talked about hell. Hell doesn't exist. That's part of the, you know, the thing of deconstructing. They talk about all the things. They become basically a liberal believer. Those people have left the faith because they are now denying the essentials of the faith. The third group is the corrupt. Those are the folks who claim to follow Christ, but their lifestyle and their actions defy what's written in God's word. 
In other words, they say they're a Christian, they come to church, they look good, but the rest of the week they live like the devil. And there's no evidence, no fruit in their life of them being a Christian. Murderers, that's pretty self-explanatory, those who take a human life through their actions and their choices. Immoral, and this is sexually immoral in the, new, in the NIV. Those who defy God's boundaries for sexual relations. Sex without the benefit of marriage, homosexuality sex, and the list goes on. The Bible says sex is awesome in marriage. Got that? It's not bad in marriage, but it's bad everywhere else. Witchcraft. Those who use poisons and drugs and magic potions, secret rituals, incantations, and especially incantations associated with religion. We were in, I forget where we were driving up, we saw a big sign, you know, tarot card readings and palm readings and all that kind of stuff. That's all part of that. Horoscope, nobody reads a horoscope, right? Now, fortune cookies, We know that we laugh when we read them. We know they're not true. If you live your life by a fortune cookie, you've got bigger problems than that. <laughs> Idol worshipers, those who worship anything in place of the one true God. It doesn't have to be another God. It could be anything else. If you worship your family, if you worship your job, if you worship your career, if you worship your car, Maybe not that one. Anything that takes the place of God, anything that God says, I want you to give it up and you won't give it up, that's an idol. Lastly, all liars, and that's false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, people who actively practice deceit and those who deny God's word. Now, this kind of stops the claim that you can live like you want because you're under God's grace and still be saved or that God will never send anybody to hell I think it's pretty plain as the Bible says the road to hell is wide and many follow it unfortunately now there's a difference between recognizing these sins and repenting of them in other words anybody never ever lie in your life I don't see any hands going up. Anything, you ever have anything that you really loved a lot and you might have thought it was more important than God? Well, there's a difference between recognizing these sins and repenting of them, knowing that they're sins, asking God to forgive you, 1 John 1, 9. There's a difference between that and living in that lifestyle, not realizing or not knowing or not caring that there's sin, that this is your constant lifestyle. You said a prayer once when you were five years old at a VBS and you've lived like the devil the rest of your life. Difference. Because we all sin. The Bible says we're all sinners. Even though we're saved, we still sin. And the Bible gives us grace for that. First John 1, 9, if, you're, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you have to recognize that they're sin. And you have to repent of them. Which means change it. Don't do it anymore. There's a difference between that and just constantly living your life without any knowledge or recognition of God.
Revelation 20, 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It was filled with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious gem, crystal clear like jasper. So one of the angels that actually had the job of pouring out God's wrath now comes to John, and the wrath pouring is over. He comes to John and says, let me show you the bride of Christ. Now we know that that's believers, right? We're believers, we're the bride of Christ. So what he's going to do, he's going to show John all the believers. Now it's not specific where he took him, other than a high mountain. Most likely it was in the spirit, in other words, in his mind's eye, kind of like, you know, in the previous, uh, when Paul said, I was taken to the third heaven in spirit. It's, he sees, he sees a glimpse of it in his mind's eye of what God's doing. He sees a glimpse of Jerusalem. And, but now he sees a much larger, detailed view of that. Now, the city, not the bride. So when he sees the new heavenly Jerusalem, that's not the bride. We're the bride. So he sees the city, which means the believers are living in the city at that moment. And it's heaven descending from the third heaven, not the first or second, from the third heaven down to the earth. Now, we talked about this earlier in the series. The first heaven is the atmosphere, what you see and what you don't see. Second heaven is outer space. And the third heaven is where God is, what's unseeable, it's where God is. But now that is coming down to planet Earth. And he's seeing it full of believers. Now, you would think over the, how big does the city have to be for all the believers of all time to be there? Well, verse 12 says, its walls were broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. Now, we'll get to the size in a minute. Walls symbolize security, right? All throughout the Old Testament, you build a wall, your city was safe. The people of God will be safe. Not that there's any intruders or anything. It just symbolizes that we are safe in heaven, free from anything that can tempt us or hurt us or trap us. Twelve gates means that they will, we will be free to come and go from this great city and explore the rest of heaven. The city's huge, but that's not all there is. We're able to go in and out when we want, however we want, to visit wherever we want to go. We will be free from that. The angels aren't there to keep people or things out because there's not going to be any need for that. Some commentators say that they are encouragers to come, who, those who come through the gate. And all I can think of was when a football team enters the field from the locker room, what happens? They have that big banner there, and everyone's cheering them on as they go onto the field. When you leave the city to go into explore the rest of heaven, all the angels are like, yeah, go, enjoy, and have a great time. They're encouragers. Come and go, man, whenever you want, whenever you want, you'll be here. Isaiah 62, 6, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. So every time you walk through the city, they're like, yeah, I'm glad you're here. Go enjoy, this. Go enjoy heaven. The tribes of Israel means that there'll be no more separation between the Jewish people and the church. We will all be one. And the Bible tells us that there's no more Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one. But in reality, there's still the Jewish nation and still Christians. Well, 
When heaven comes, there will be no recognition of that. We will all be believers. We will all be God's people. Verse 14, Revelation says, The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The church has the apostles to thank for the foundation of what we have today. Everything was built by what the 12 apostles did. Ephesians 2.20 says, We are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So everything we have is based on what they did 2,000 years ago. Verses 15 and 16 says, The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found that it was as square, as wide as it was long. In fact, it was in the form of a cube, for its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. So this indicates two things. What John is seeing is actually a real city, not a spiritual city, but a physical place. Now, I looked it up. The U.S. distance from coast to coast depending on where you start and finish, is anywhere from 2,100 to 2,800 miles. That's how big the United States is. The distance from the Canadian border to the Mexican border is about 2,100 miles. So this one city would take up about two-thirds of the entire United States. And, and it extends 1,400 miles in the air. And it's a cube. I can't even fathom a building reaching 1,400 miles in the air. I think... There's a city in, or a, a tower in Dubai, is it, that's like a mile high. One mile. This is 1,400 miles high. Verse 17 goes on and says, Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. The angel used a standard human measure. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on the foundation stones inlaid with 12 gems. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jason, the twelfth amethyst. As the twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. Now, you ladies who have pearl necklaces, they're what, like this big? An entire gate was one pearl. I want to see the oyster. <laughs> now, that's where we get the term streets of gold. But the gold here is different than what we know now. Our gold isn't transparent. No matter how thin you get it, it's still not transparent. It might be translucent, but it's not transparent. But in this city, the gold will be transparent. Don't know how that's going to be, but that's what it's going to be. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, this is what scripture says, when, mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So we may have an image in our mind of what it might be like, but the Bible says we really have no conception. He's giving us as much description that we can understand in our feeble minds but in reality, it's like trying to explain quantum mechanics to a two-year-old. Don't get it. We don't understand what it's going to be like. And verse 22 says, No temple can be seen in the city, for the Lord Almighty and the, and the Lamb are its temple. 
In the Old Testament, God's presence was in the temple. You know, the cloud came down and filled the temple with his presence. In the New Testament era, that's us, God's presence through the Holy Spirit was in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, that's his presence in the, in the world today. And when the rapture happens and the Holy Spirit's presence is gone, that's when tribulation starts and all, the, all quote, hell breaks loose. But in heaven, God's presence will be everywhere, everywhere. And again, we can't comprehend that. But I'm excited to see it. We will be in constant and direct contact with God's presence at all times. Now, even in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that God walked through it and he, he had to find, quote, find Adam and Eve. So he wasn't everywhere. He was walking as one person, but in heaven, he's going to be everywhere. It's like a cloud. He'll be everywhere. Verses 23 and 24 says, And the city had no need for sun or moon, for the glory of, the, of God illuminates the city with the Lamb and its light, as its light. The, nation of the nations of the earth will walk in its light, and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it. God's full revelation of glory means the sun and moon aren't necessary. There'll be enough glory of God to just fill this place. Now, the way the sun provides heat and all the processes, you know, photosynthesis and all that stuff, no longer needed because everything that's going to be there is going to be directed by God, handled by God, provided by God. The sun, moon, stars, none of it will be needed anymore. Jesus will be our source of power. He'll be our source of energy and light. Now, we no longer need sleep. It's going to be light all the time. We won't need to rest our bodies. We won't be tired. We won't wear down. Therefore, night isn't necessary. No day-night cycles are necessary because we will be energizer bunnies all the time. Some of you are that right now. I'm looking at you, Judy. The nations that are mentioned here are not what we think of nations today. It simply means the background of all the people that are there. They're all going to be different backgrounds, different nations they come from. Be one nation. Verse 25 through 27 says, its gates will never close at the end of the day because there is no night. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be, evil will be allowed to enter. No one who practices shameful idol, idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Everyone's free to go and come and go as they wish. There's no nighttime. There's no, okay, there's no curfew. They don't close the gates like they did in the Old Testament. Everything is in the light. You can go anywhere you want. Now, at night, we lock everything, right? Unless you're Gibbs, you don't. You know, everyone locks their door. We lock everything because, as my folks used to say, and we tell our girls, nothing good happens at night. <laughs> if you're out in the middle of the night, nothing good's going to happen. But there's not going to be any dark. It's going to be perfect. No night, no sin, no evil, no temptation, so no need to lock anything. Nothing will be allowed to enter because nothing is there to enter. Everything's perfect. There's no sin, there's no evil, there's no temptation. Why? Because the only ones there will be believers. And our names would have been in the book of life. So I guess the most important question today is, is your name in the book of life? 
When you see the contrast between eternity with God and eternity without God, you know, as an unbeliever, I, you know, I get that you don't understand things of God. But if you recognize that there is life after death, whether life in hell or life in heaven, you got to make a choice. And the choice is pretty plain of what the consequences and the choices are. Either you want to spend eternity with God or you don't. And the funny thing is, everyone thinks they're going to make it to heaven. I've done hundreds of funerals. I've never met one person in any funeral that says, oh, I know where that guy's at. They all think, no matter how wicked they've been in their life, they know, they believe they're going to be in heaven. And they'll say, why? Because, oh, I was a good person. I didn't, well, no, they weren't. But they still think they're going to make it. But that list we read, God's requirements, no one's due heaven. Something you have to sign up for. You have to get your name in the book. Now, I usually use this at funerals, but I'm going to use this analogy today. How many of you have life insurance? Car insurance? Homeowner's insurance? Can you, can you get car insurance after you have an accident? Hello, Allstate? I had a wreck today. Can I get insurance? Can I, can I do that? No. You had a choice before the accident. And you, you gambled and you took, the, you took the easy way out. But now when you have the accident, nothing they can do. You take insurance because you know something yeah, is going to happen. You hope it doesn't, but eventually it will probably happen. If you have teenage drivers, it's going to happen. A couple of times. Oh, yeah. I've been there, done that. Yeah, I get the phone call, right? Dad. You can tell they're crying on the phone, so you know it's not good. But you buy insurance because just in case something happens. Well, we, know, we all know that something is going to happen to each one of us, and that's death. And if you wait until you die, you are out of luck. You're not going to make it. There's no second chances. There's no calling up getting heaven insurance. You have to make the choice today. And the Bible says it's, it's easy, but it's hard. Because that you have to admit that everything you've ever done up to this point has been sinful, right? How many like to admit that I'm a sinful person? Nobody. But the Bible says we're all sinners. We all sin. And we all fall short of what God's standard is. God's standard is perfection. I think you asked this question. Anybody perfect? My wife. But anybody else perfect? Perfect. Nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. And God says, well, one sin is going to keep you out. One. So here's the deal. I'm going to send Jesus. You're a sinner. This is, you have to pay this debt, but he's going to pay it for you. He's going to, he's going to suffer the, the pain that you should suffer. 
He's going to die because you should die. He's going to do it for you. What are you going to do with that? You have to believe it. The Bible says as many as receive him. In other words, not just know that he exists. As receive him. Did you have, you have the power or authority to be called children of God? Not everyone in the world is God's kid. How many know that? <laughs> There's no brotherhood of, no fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man stuff. You are God's kid if you believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, what's the Bible say? You are of your father, the devil. So you are either God's kid or the devil's kid. And God says, I've, I've paid everything so you can be my kid. I've given everything for you. I'll let my son die for you because you don't deserve it. What are you going to do with it? And the Bible says, as many as receive him, he gave the power to become children of God. And the Bible also says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, God, that Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead, that means you're saved. That means you're a Christian. That means you admitted you're a sinner. That means you come to God and say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to give you, but I believe that Jesus paid what I owe. And not only that, I'm going to live now. I'm going to live the way Jesus wants me to live. Not how I want to live, but what God wants me to live. If Jesus did that for me, then man, I'm going to give my life to him. So I'm going to ask you to stand real close, real fast. Keep your eyes closed, your head bowed. That's right. You never assume that just because you're in church that everyone is saved, everyone knows Christ. So if you're here, the Bible says that nothing, nothing is an accident. You may think you brought yourself and you just made the decision to come today. While you didn't make that choice, God prompted you to make that choice because God wanted you to be here for whatever was happening today. And the Bible says if you're thinking about God, it's because God's making you think about him. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless, no one comes to God unless the Father draws them. So he's drawing you. It means if you're thinking about it, God's making you think about it. He's doing all of that because he wants you to make the choice yourself. He's not going to make it for you. The Bible says Jesus stands at the doorway of your heart and he knocks. But he's not going to kick the door in. He wants you to open the door and let him in. So if you're a sinner and you know that you're a sinner, you've never really accepted Christ as your Savior, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not next week, not next month. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. So you need to make and get that insurance now. Trust Christ now. And then once you do that, then all the promises we talked about earlier are yours. It doesn't mean you'll be free from all hardships. It just means you'll have God to help you through every one of them. So if that's you and you've never really accepted Christ and you want to do that today, you want your life to be different today. And trust me, it will be different beginning today if you say yes to Jesus. So if that's you, I want you to raise your hand because I'm going to pray with you. Trust that God's going to do something in your life. All right, I'm going to believe we're all committed followers of Christ here. So Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus. And we are excited for what you've planned for us. 
The word tells us that we really can't comprehend how beautiful and awesome it's going to be. But you've given us just a, a touch, a little taste of what heaven will be like. So Father, as we live in anticipation of that, we want our lives here to matter here. We want to be found worthy, Lord. We want our life to be pleasing to you. You've given so much for us, Lord. We just want to show our appreciation for how much you've blessed us and how much you've given us in salvation. We want to show that by how we live. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill each person today. Allow us to really have that energy and that desire and that unction just to live every day to honor you. We want you to be pleased. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Whether it's tomorrow or 100 years from now, Father, we want to be ready for when you return. And I believe it's going to be soon. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each one here today. Allow them to experience not only the the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but the fulfillment of promises, answers to prayer. Let them see the power of God in action in their lives as they step out in faith and trust you. Trust you and live in hope of what you're going to do either today, tomorrow, or next week. We live for you, Lord, and we trust you with our future, and we do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.